join us as we take a look behind the scenes with the independent musicians of Louisiana. Learn about upcoming projects before they drop. Experience the rich heritage of iconic venues and get first-hand accounts of exclusive events. Musicians are remarkable people. Get to know them, their struggles, and the inspiration for their art. NewOrleansMusicians.com is dedicated to uplifting the artists and providing them with the tools necessary to elevate their craft. We shine a spotlight on them, as well as highlight the music scene and educate everyone with our interviews, album reviews, and music scene news. This is NewOrleansMusicians.com. Um, I was born in uh, Collie, Columbia. July 20th, 1971, uh, moved here when I was about three or four. Um, pretty much had, um, I guess like everyone else, a standard um, upbringing. Grew up in the Ninth Ward in New Orleans um, until about 1980, moved to Chalmette. Um, then around 89, moved to Araby, uh, attended Holy Cross High School. Um, then moved out here to Metairie in 94. And um, that's pretty much about it. I uh, started playing guitar when I was about 14 or 15. So, you know, a lot of people don't know I, I have a guitar background. That was my my first stringed instrument. Uh, my instrument before that was I was a clarinet player from fifth grade to ninth grade. Um, the, I took up the guitar and then somewhere around 2000, I got sick of the guitar, picked up bass. And uh, haven't looked back, although I, I still mess around with the guitar. I can still compose on it and write on it. And um, my introduction to the scene was May of 89, which was Storyville Jazz Hall, I Hate God, Soylent Green, and Exhorter. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was my first show. Hell of a way to get introduced. So that was that was my very first show, and then it just it went from there. Yeah. So um, did you take music theory with the uh, clarinet? Yes, um, learning the clarinet, especially at 10 years old, uh, that's how I developed the ability to, to sight read, learn theory, scales, arpeggios, uh, because I find that a lot of musicians, guitarists and bassists, always ask me, dude, I'd love to learn music theory, or do you teach music theory? And I'm like, yeah, you know, to me, theory's, uh, it's second nature. It, it's easy for me, but only because I have that, that clarinet background. Sure. You know, so you have to learn how to read treble clef. You have to learn how to read music, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, whereas with guitar, you have tablature, you know, ditto for bass. You have tablature where it shows the numbers, where you put your fingers on the frets, what frets to play. You don't have that for a clarinet. Yeah. So, you know, you have to sight read. And it's also, too, uh, anything I write, I could also, if I wanted to, I could just put it down in standard notation as music. You know, if someone ever wanted to see sheet music of it. Big help. <laughs> yeah, 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 most definitely, you know. Um, so, yeah, that uh, you're correct. That is where it started, was with my exposure to clarinet and playing in the marching band. Yeah. Um, at home, uh, mom and dad are both at home growing up as a child? No, just my mom. My mom split from my dad uh, real young, and then we moved here from Collie, and uh, she raised me. And, um, yeah, it, uh, interestingly enough, my dad is, um, speaks mostly Spanish, which though growing up in my household, my mom, although she's fluent, uh, she never spoke it with me and I didn't really get any exposure to Spanish till my freshman year at Holy Cross where you had to take Spanish 
uh, my freshman and sophomore year, Spanish one, Spanish two. Yeah. But I never wound up using it. It only came into, I wouldn't say I'm very proficient at it. I can speak it if need be, although at times I I understand it better than I can speak it. A lot of people, yeah. Yeah, but I had to do it for, for certain jobs. Like at one point I was selling car insurance for U.S. agencies, and a lot of people I was writing were undocumented. A lot of, uh, I guess, people coming in from Central America and whatnot. So I had to learn to kind of speak Spanish with them. Sure. You know, but also, too, on the, uh, on the weekends... I do this thing every now and then. Uh, it's called the Dinner Detective. It's like a murder mystery thing, and I'm I'm part of the cast, and I play one of the murder victims. And the staff at the hotel, they all speak Spanish. So talking to them, it helped improve my Spanish. Nice. So when I see them, I can talk fluent Spanish with them and ask them things and whatnot. Yeah. But honestly, around here on the scene, it. it really doesn't come up you know did um were there any latin influences because i was gonna i was gonna ask about the music in your household as a child because a lot of times i mean it's a major influence whatever our parents listen to you know my mom listened to uh she listened to the radio a lot wtix mm -hmm. oldies so as a result i grew up you know listening when we were in the car listening to the 70s stuff the 60s, hearing all that on WTIX. My dad, by contrast, he had wound up leaving Collie to go to Florida and remarried. And so when I'd go visit him in Florida, it would be a total 180. He would have, uh, you know, like uh, Latin jazz or brass music, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Sure. You know, so I got exposed to that at a really young age and I kind of dug it. It didn't really stick with me, but it, it was definitely different. And I mean, he was into the whole... Uh, that that side of that style of music, so and into the the dance styles as well, uh, uh, bolero, cha cha, salsa, merengue. Yeah. So complete, you know, complete one eighty. Did that? Um, I mean, because at the time you were playing clarinet, did it kind of resonate with you that that uh, listening to the the woodwind sides and the brass side of things? At that time, no. No. No, it didn't. Um, actually, my visiting my dad. Um, down in Florida, that actually came way after I was done with clarinet. I was already, uh, I was already in my early twenties gotcha. by that time. Yeah, so clarinet was long been done. Having said that, last couple years I really contemplated. Uh, I started pricing clarinets and maybe picking one up again, just to do one of those little uh, marching band crews that you see, like crew of whatever, like a little ragtag crew that just marched through the quarter during one play sure. and play, you know, Dixieland or ragtime. I'm thinking, man, I'd love me just pick up the clarinet again. I can still play it. Quick but funny story, at uh, Guitar Center, this was some years ago, uh, they were selling clarinets, and I knew the uh, the girl who was a friend of mine. She was working the uh, the front door. Anyway, I was checking out one of the clarinets, and um, she let me use a reed. I was playing it, and I uh, started playing uh, Iron Man. I started playing some Black Sabbath and <laughs> Judas Priest on the clarinet because yeah. I know the notes. And wound up actually selling a clarinet to this guy and his kid. They're like, oh, and they're like, yeah, sure. And they they bought the clarinet from the guy, and I was like, I just sold a clarinet, and I don't even work here. Right. I just thought it was amusing. <laughs> like, hey, can I get a cut of this? Like, I just sold right. an instrument for you. Yeah. I mean, but I played Iron Man. And I played Breaking the Law. Do, 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 do. And like, she's like, is that Judas Priest? I'm like, yeah. I mean, I, I know the notes. <laughs> yeah. So I can see it on clarinet. I can visualize it and I can play it. That's funny. Yeah. Um, you, what, what was the catalyst for the change 
the switch between uh, guitar and bass? Um, I think I'd always kind of been a closet bassist because I always paid attention to bass players. But really what did it for me was watching their fingers. Uh, case in point, Steve Harris, Iron Maiden. I'd watch him and I'd just see like their fingers. I was like, how do they play like that with their fingers? Like, God, I can't fathom that. And I think that was always fascinating to me. And around 2000, like I said, when I switched over, I was at a friend's house um, who at the time, he lived in the Marini and he had a bass. And every time I'd go over there, I'd pick it up and I would just noodle on it. And he was like, man, just take the damn thing home, <laughs> you know, and it went from there. And I went with that and then got my first bass, which was a uh, Yamaha, Yamaha RBX80 black fretless bass. And I got the fretless not because of... A lot of people think Jocko, although Jocko Pastorius is one of my biggest influences. Yeah. But I got it because of uh, Steve DiGiorgio, the bass player for Sadus and Death, who now plays with Testament. Uh -huh. He was like you, he, the first metal guy to play fretless. He was fretless in, uh, in an extreme metal context. Really? And that was the reason I got the fretless, because hearing him play, I was like, my God, he's playing this extreme thrash stuff on a fretless. And uh, so that was a catalyst behind me uh, getting into fretless bass, which I played for... I think the first decade or so I was strictly fretless uh, before going um, to fretted but going to fretted was not necessarily a choice it kind of happened by accident um, and I do have a, a fretless the one you heard me playing on earlier the the J copy I have over there you know you heard me noodling around on um, because at the fretless is just it's a part of me you can just get a sound out of it it has a nuance that you just can't get out of a fretted. Sure. Although some of the techniques I do on fretless, like sliding the harmonics or sliding chords, I can do it on the fretted, uh, just because the fretted bass is a fretted bass. You're not going to have, uh, you're not going to have much to work with because the frets will kill if you try to slide a harmonic. The fret metal, of course, is going to kill once you get past a certain point. Sure. You know. So. Um, do you think your friend loaning you that? Did he loan it to you or give it to you? Oh, he loaned it to me. Okay. So he loaned you that bass, and you have it for some time. Do you think that kind of gave you the confidence? Because it requires a sort of confidence to attack the bass fretless at first, it would seem. Do you know what I'm saying? So yes. did it kind of give you the confidence to, to make that decision? It did. It did, because any fretless bass I've ever had, they've all had the lines on them. Because some of them don't have lines next at all. It's just a flat bald fingerboard but all the bases I've had had the lines on them and when I borrowed his base first it was a matter of getting the right hand technique down because to switch from pick to fingers the first month or two it was grueling because my fingers just didn't want to conform uh, to do an alternate picking it just would not work and so after a couple months it started getting easier and then um, I got the Yamaha, I don't remember where I got it from, and uh, started going to open mic nights at like uh, uh, the Turtle Lounge out on Airline. It would have these open mic blues jams. So I'd go there with my fretless and, you know, I mean, that's how you do it. You just, you know, kind of like jumping in with both feet, so to speak. You sure. Know, bringing the fretless to a blue and just getting your chops together there, playing with people. Yeah. yeah. What? Uh, which one was with you? For most of your callous building phase, I guess you would call it. Um, I had wound up getting, uh, after the Yamaha, I wound up getting this jazz copy bass called an XX. 
Um, and it was a copy of a, of a Fender Jazz Bass 20 frets. It was fretless, but with a line neck. But I put EMG pickups in it, EMG jazz replacement pickups. And uh, that was the one that stayed with me uh, through Katrina, through everything. And that was uh, that's what I built my chops up on. Yeah. Yeah, that and uh, lucking out finding a couple Jaco Pastorius books and really analyzing and figure and learn what he played and how he did it and uh, that built my chops up as well. Yeah, I bet. I didn't know they had books out on that guy, but yeah. I heard his music and it's phenomenal. Uh, yeah, I have I have a couple I have a couple of his books with a lot of his transcriptions and that's it's not I mean, it's easy for me now, but in the beginning no, it was it was it was work. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. So you do, um, you've done a lot of gigging just kind of on solo, like just going out and going to open mics and things like that and performances. And you said uh, you were at a blues night. Is it, do you kind of gravitate towards certain genres? Not so much I gravitate as much as that. That's really kind of all what they had going on in Jefferson, New Orleans. Because you it know, fit. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, back it. when I was playing guitar, before I picked up bass, I would go to open mic blues jams at uh, Mid-City Rock and Bowl before it was on Carrollton. Um, no, I'm, so, I'm sorry. It was still on Carrollton, but it was it was where the Shamrock is now. Yeah. Before they moved next to the old College Inn. And they would have open mic nights there, and I'd go with a bass player, a friend of mine. And at the time, I was playing a Strat, which... Um, I still well not the same strap, but I've, and um, and I would go there and I'd play and and play. So uh, that's really all I had were open mic jams. It were mainly blues jams. Yeah, because that's what everyone did. They really didn't have much. And we have like open mic jazz night, or or if they did have an open mic, to be like bring your instrument, play whatever. But what I noticed was that when I sometimes I would go just to, to scope them out and not bring my instrument, just to see what people would play, and the majority of the time. You know, uh, guys would come with their guitar, their bass, or their horn, or whatever, and they would wind up playing um, just really common blues progressions. Um, you know, just standard, standard stuff. And I was like, okay, I, I, I get it. You know, the um, so that's um, so that what that was about. So not necessarily much gravitating as much as uh, that's all what they really had. Having said that, though. I like playing blues jams because I get to walk. Uh, what I mean by walk is walking bass lines like do 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 do. Sure. Which people who know the kind of stuff I do might, you know, might uh, think that I'd I maybe like that style, or whatever. But right. Nah, I love that style. I mean, that's the basis of of all things blue. That's the basis of rock and roll and yeah. and everything that follows. You yeah. know, I mean, if you're a bassist. And you can't walk bass lines or play behind a guitar or play over chord changes. You, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. don't bother because that's that's what the bass does. You know, it's there with the drums, the rhythm section, and you know, you're doing your thing. Even some of the mimic stuff um, has a couple uh, lines where I walk. You know, and like I said, walk's just a it's just a slang term for yeah for moving the bass lines around. Do 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 do. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you were, I think you said it already, I might have missed it, playing bass by the time you were visiting your father? Or was it still guitar at it was still, time? It was still guitar. It was still guitar. It was still guitar at the time. Had, had there been any other Latin influences in the music that you were hearing 
um, before then? I mean, it came to you in a strong way at that time, but I mean, before then, were you hearing much Latin influence around no. you or in, no. in what you were playing either? No, not at all. When I was playing guitar, I was going to Holy Cross at the time, and I was hanging out with a couple guys uh, where I was living in Village Square, and like me, they were total metalheads. So, you know, for us, it was all about Priest and Maiden and Motley Crue. And, and so, no, there was, there was yeah. no Latin to be found at all. Right. It was strictly a metal thing. Did, you take, did you take anything with you from that encounter in Florida? Um, no. No. <laughs> no. Plainly said. Anybody, everybody's got a Herb Albert uh, Tijuana Brass Band uh, record somewhere. They just, they're in every bin, they're in everyone's house, they just made it out to the four corners of the earth some kind of a way, so. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if um, you know, some of it stuck with you, you know. Uh, a couple of the tunes did. I don't know the names of songs, but if I heard them, if I heard the trumpet melody, I would know what it is. It would instantly take me back. Sure. To being young. And I'd be like, oh man, I remember that song. Yeah, it's, that's because, of, you know, my, my dad was into that kind of music so the her, the lady's name escapes me but um she's a volunteer dj on wwoz um hispanic lady and she plays nothing but uh spanish music for her time on on um on the show and um i jam out to it dude i like it i love that stuff I think it's so cool. It's different than what else, whatever you're gonna find. I mean, maybe in other parts of the United States that's more prevalent, but here, that's my go-to for that, you know. So I mean, I and it's definitely, it's it's different than anything else we're gonna be able to find. So it kind of, I don't know, it strikes me. I'll pause for a minute and I'll listen to a few tunes on there every time I hear it, you know. Yeah, it's um, well for a while I was uh, working with a fringe Latin band. They were called Vivaz. Later, oh, Acoustic Swiftness. They later changed their name to Vivaz. And they still play around in the city. Um, and we, uh, they would play a lot at, at the time. It was called Cafe Brazil on Frenchman. Yeah. And I would work the door for them. And just being around them and hanging out with the band leader, who I've known for years. I mean, that's all he had playing uh, was Latin jazz and things like that. So, you know, going and doing, uh, helping them out at gigs, working the door, set, setting their gear up. You know, I was constantly exposed to that. That that's all they played. That's cool. So that's where a lot of the bulk of the Latin stuff came in was um, hearing that stuff. You know, the different styles, especially the salsa. You know, the percussion and everything. I'm like, yeah. man, it, and those bass lines too, man. They really, you know, they're not the most difficult things, but I mean, it just really propels the music in conjunction with the drums. It really pushes it. That kind of style, it's called the clave. Yeah. And it's two against three and three against two, and it's a rhythmic type of form. And uh, it really propels the music along with the drums and drives it. And um, being a bassist, of course, that, that always that always stuck with me. Like, man, it, it's just, you know, a simple progression, but it just... It's powerful. Well, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's cool. It, what was... Um, when... In your life, did the, the the first band occur? Is that something that's been recent? Has most of your experience been solo? Uh, my first band was a band called. This was two thousand eight or nine. Was a band called Vice, um, which uh, were a few friends of mine. Um, my friend Matt, he was a drummer, and he's like, "Hey, I'm doing this project. I want you in on it." 
And uh, so that was my first band. Immediately after that, or right around the same time, I got with this band called Built to Destroy, which was a real total 180. Vice was like, well, kind of like alternative rock. Mm -hmm. uh, Built to Destroy was just straight up heavy technical thrash. And so I got with them, doing stuff with them. And then right around the same time, maybe a year or two later, I joined a band called, at the time, we called The Great Void. Then they just went to The Void. I played bass with them. And uh, so that was about, yeah, 2000, between 2008 and I'd say 2010. Um, and then sometime around 2000, why well, I get to cruise between 2000 and 2011. I think 2011, somewhere around that time, um, I got the Exhorter gig, which was, um, what had happened was there, that bass player at the time, Frankie Sparcello, had passed, and um, I got a Facebook message from Kyle Thomas, and he's like, call Vinny LaBella ASAP, and um, it just went from there. But I think the way I got the gig, I'm convinced, was that... Uh, the band Malevolent Creation from Florida, they were playing a show at a venue in Fat City at the time called The Bar, which used to be Ski Lodge. Yeah. And the promoter hit me up. I was like, hey, dude, we need an opening band. Can you guys do it? Built to Destroy. And so I hit up my guys. I'm like, dude, we're opening for Malevolent. Yeah, let's do it. So we did it, and uh, Kyle and Vinny were there. Ah. And uh, because uh, Malevolent was on Roadrunner Records, as was Exhorter. Yeah. And they saw us play and i think that was a catalyst they were like so i um contacted vinny he's like look i know you have uh, a couple uh show coming up because we the void and built to destroy i was gonna be doing double duty we were booked to play siberia that night and uh i told the guys i said look i said uh exhorter want me to do some shows with them in texas with uh, rigor mortis so I'm, I'm taking the gig and they weren't too crazy about it, but, you know, <laughs> they understood. And um, and then after we did a few shows there, then a month or two later, we did the Maryland Death Fest, uh, where we co-headlined with Voivod, which was kind of a dream come true, and to get to hang out with those guys. Um, and then after that, it, I've pretty much just been um, low-key um, for the most part, you know, with the exception of now I'm doing uh, for the last few months I guess we started it around November or so I've been doing the the mimic project with Apollo from Herakleon mm -hmm. so you were um, but you were also uh, you started the Grooves didn't you that was your band the Grooves no um, and thank you I can't believe I forgot to mention shame on me uh, I actually volunteered to play bass for him because the first time I saw him was at the Circle Bar and they completely blew me away. They were so energetic. I was like, man, these guys are fantastic. And their drummer had left, and their bass player went to drums, and so they were just a two-piece. And I saw them play at Babylon one night, this club in Metairie, and I said, man, you guys really need a bass player. I said, I'm not doing anything. I'd be more than happy to. And um, they're like, okay, well, we're playing Creepy Fest next week. Can you learn the tunes in a week? I was like, yeah, just give me you know, a tape or some way to listen to them. And he uh sent me the files i learned the tunes and uh and yeah we we did creepy fest and then started playing shows with the other local bands and uh playing creepy fest every year and so yeah no it wasn't my band i volunteered to play bass for them gotcha. because i liked what they did they were real energetic and that's another thing too 
I kind of pride myself on is that any band or project I've ever done has not sounded like anything remotely that's come out of New Orleans. I'm not saying that to disparage the New Orleans sound. Sure. But what I'm saying is bands like Built to Destroy, The Void, Vice, The Grooks, uh, Mimic, my current project, none of those bands sounded anything like what was coming out the city. They all had their own unique sound. All the bands were different. And I pride myself on that because... It it's hard, really, I think, to be uh, to be in bands that can stand out and not be carbon copies of other bands. You know, because when a sound becomes real popular, naturally you want to copy that. You know, for every band that comes out that breaks new ground, you have a bunch of other bands that follow. Like, hey, it worked for them. Let's let's right. let's yeah. do that. Whereas all the bands I've been in have been like, no, we're not following you know formula. We're not following tradition. We're doing our own thing. And sometimes I think that can, unfortunately, it can work against you because with some people it can either go over their heads or it's just not their thing and it falls by the wayside. But, I mean, to me, it's better than just playing in a band that's a clone of something else. Yeah, you got to realize, too, there's a lot of artists out there that they get comfortable. No matter what they did to get to where they are, they start to get comfortable and the exploration part just kind of fades a little bit, you know. They yeah. Start, they start looking for what's worked already to get that next solid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They and I can name so many bands. Uh, like, uh, you know, like I was think I was having a conversation about this with a friend of mine some time ago. You know, it's like uh, I like I love Suffocation, a death metal band from New York, but I don't want to listen to ten different bands that sound like them. Uh, you know, I love the Dillinger Escape Plan. I don't want to listen to a bunch of bands that sound like them. Um, you know, I love Cynic. I don't want to hear a bunch of bands that are trying to copy them. Not that there are many. You know, so it's like I always want to listen to the the genre front runners. Sure. You know, and not and not the clones, because <clears throat> all the clones are going to do is just take that and only get a surface glimpse, if you will, or just the the most. Uh, not extraneous, what's the word I'm looking for? Just the most basic um, surface thing, and they're just going to go with that. They they don't really go much further than that. And especially in the death metal field, when you got a lot of bands that do the Cookie Monster vocals or suck the mids out of the guitar and just do the... Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's all been done so many times before and by better bands. So my thing is, you know, listen, I'm listening to the bands that, that that started that you know that were the front runners for that you know especially a lot of the florida bands sure so is that what came first for you were you listening to those things because of those qualities or were you trying to do that on your own first or did it kind of happen simultaneously i mean and, and honestly how do you do both at the same time like it's hard not to find yourself even by accident starting to sound like or having some influence sink into what you're doing you know and then you realize wait a minute so that's already been done well it kind of followed it's interesting because when i first got into metal this is around 84 for me it was um priest maiden motley crew metallica you know ozzy Dokken, dio and which was at the time you know was was current it was still uh, fresh, it was it was cutting edge, you know. Then a few years later, when Thrash started rearing its ugly head, or well, a couple years later, then I started hearing Thrash and hearing like, oh man, listen to how fast these bands can play, and yeah. 
And then a few years later when death metal started coming in, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I've always been fascinated by extremes. Like how fast can you humanly play? How long can you play that fast for? You know, um, that's always been a thing with me. Like I can remember hearing Slayer and Creator. I heard Slayer first, Rain and Blood, around 86 or so. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, Jesus, man, I thought, you know, Judas Priest and Accept or Metallica were fast. And I heard Rain and Blood, and then a while later I heard Creator's Pleasure to Kill. And then a few years later, when I'd heard, like, um, you know, Death and Morbid Angel and stuff like that, I'm like, my God, just keeps getting so extreme. And I, lo- <laughs> I loved it. I'm like, this is great. These yeah. guys are pushing themselves, yeah. like, to the limits. Like, man, what, you know, let's push it and push it. And I've always been fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. And so pretty much whatever I would write or come up with is just a huge amalgamation of what I've been listening to for like the last almost four decades. I mean, you know, I I still have LPs. I mean, you know, all these like, you know, which LPs for a lot of people's, uh, although I know vinyls made somewhat of a comeback. Yeah. You know, I've had a lot of these LPs since I was in high school. I mean, I got the first Slayer on vinyl. I got a bunch of Iron Maiden European B-sides. I got the early Megadeth on vinyl, like um, an Aussie bootleg on vinyl, like all kinds of, you just, you know, you'd really have to search high and low for like eBay or whatever, you know, but I bought this stuff when I had the chance to buy it in a record store called Vans Records in Chalmette. And before that, it was uh, Acorn Music also uh, in Chalmette. And they, it was the eighties. So they had, uh, they had everything. Yeah. You know, they had all that. Yeah. I remember those days, man. They had warehouse records and tapes out here on veterans in Metairie. And, um, man, that you could go there and get any tape you could think of and uh, metal studded leather to boot. Like, you know, it was like hanging on the wall, T-shirts, all that stuff. It was it was the world at the time. It, it was. And not only was it like that here, well, Shalmet, I should say, where I was growing up, but there was also the Plaza and Lake Forest. You had Camelot Records. I remember walking mm-hmm. in there. And you name it, they had it. it all by, you know, Celtic Frost, you know, Destruction, whatever. And I'm looking at all these album covers. I'm like, wow. <laughs> I'm like, look at this. And, you know, and they had the shirts and, and everything. They had the mirrors. That was another thing, too. Uh, Chalmette, they would have these fairs. And um, the prizes they'd give away, depending on what um, event you did, like trying to pop balloons or whatever. I remember winning a Metallica Master of Puppets mirror. And the Motley Crew shout at the devil mirror. Put my phone on. I don't know. Yeah, sorry about that. So, um, you remember so, going to the fair? And yeah, like, going to the fair and um, and I won a uh, Motley Crew Master of Puppets mirror. And I mean. Metallica Master of Puppets Mirror yeah. and a Motley Crue Shout Out the Devil Mirror. I remember winning those and uh, I was like, I, I wish I still had them because they'd probably be worth money. I guess I was like 15 or 16 at the time. Yeah. And I, do, I don't know what happened to them. But uh, yeah, it was that was the era for it. You, you were talking about uh, your enthusiasm and, and following those that pushed the limits um, as far as what was humanly possible. Um, in metal um what about punk music and its influence um on metal or thrash even and its influence i mean how do you how do you um 
what were your thoughts and encounters with it um, when you were just starting to see how far people could go? My first exposure to punk rock and therefore hardcore was um, there's a station, it's still around WTUL, Tulane Station, back in the mid-80s. On Friday night, they would have the hardcore show. On Saturday nights, they would have the metal show, Generally Hostile. And at the time, Generally Hostile, the metal show on Saturday nights, they were playing everything that was coming out new at the time. So you would hear, you would hear Fate's Warning, then you would hear, uh, you know, Possessed, then you'd hear Celtic Frost, then you'd hear uh, Slayer or Destruction, um, Megadeth, Hallow's Eve. And this was all, and I'm listening, I'm like I'm getting exposed to all this. And then on Friday nights, a hardcore show where they'd play, uh, you know, Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, The Minutemen, Flipper, all this, Butthole Surfers. And it didn't really stick with me at the time. My my real, I guess, jumping in, going in with the, the punk rock thing was uh, a friend of mine, my senior year in high school, he gave me, uh, bought me up for my birthday, a Bad Brains, the first Bad Brains cassette, the one, mm. yeah, the ROIR cassette, the yellow cassette. And I was like, oh my lord, I was like, this is incredible. And then... I think right after that, the Ramones followed. I bought a couple of their albums, and it just kind of went from there. Then it went to like uh, Agnostic Front, and mm-hmm. then it went to like uh, Final Conflict, uh, a band from California, then Cro-Mags, and then some years later, I happened to cross, even though they came out in 84, I didn't know who they were at the time, a band from Boston called Siege, and I got their cassette, Drop Dead, and that to me, when I heard it, I was like, whoa, I was like, this was really extreme, more extreme than, than you know, for, for, because it was hardcore, but it was, it was, mu- it was very extreme hardcore punk. Uh-huh. Um, and so Siege really blew me away with that, uh, especially for the time it came out in 84. Um, since then, I've uh, come to appreciate, uh, some of the later uh, Black Flag stuff, like when Henry joined, like uh, Process of Weeding Out, Slip It In, My War. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've come to really appreciate that. And uh, <clears throat> if I do listen to any punk or hardcore, either it's going to be like Ramones or it's going to be uh, Bad Brains or it's going to be Agnostic Front, um, you know, uh, things of that nature. And you're right, you know, hardcore punk, you know, without hardcore punk, you wouldn't have Thrash. Right, I guess that's kind of where I was leading up to. Um, Obviously, you had a deep appreciation for it, um, watching it uh, progress throughout the years. Um, In what you were composing, um, how did it influence you? Or did it, really? It did to an extent, um, especially in my formative years of learning guitar and trying to record stuff. Uh, the temp, the tempos did, and some of the chord progressions did. Uh-huh. Like, it, it, it definitely did to yeah. to an extent. Um, but mainly, especially during my time of playing guitar, uh, what really I honed in on were the uh, were the shredders, quote unquote. Because at the time, you had Shrapnel Records, and they had you know Paul Gilbert, Jason Becker, Tony McAlpine. You know, they had all the up-and-coming, you know, the Shredders. Um, Ingve to an extent, he wasn't on Shrapnel, but, um, you know, he was a name. You know, some years later, a few years later, I'd heard Steve Vai. And uh, so that had really made a big impression on me. So then I set out to try and learn how to play like that, like the arpeggios and the sweep arpeggios and the fast scales. And, yeah. 
And I, I got fairly proficient with it. Um, and then just some years later, I guess I'd, I I got bored, kind of burned out of it. And then I, I went to the bass. Yeah. Which I can do that stuff on bass. But uh, there's something about playing bass that I find to be very sublime and just very satisfying. Mainly because playing the bass, you have a lot more control over the music than most people think you would. Uh, what I mean by that is if the guitar is playing a certain rhythmic figure, the bass can play something along with it. But uh, I'll give you a real-life example. When I played in The Void, we had a song where the guitars were holding out chords, like, da, da. Mm -hmm. and uh, underneath it, you had the kicks going, do, 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 do. So I would play an eighth note bass line to it, like a do, 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 to, to propel it. But when the guitarist was switching the chords, I would stay on the same note I was playing. What that uh, and what's interesting is that all the other bass players who played in the void after me, they never played it like I played it. They switched the root note with the guitars. Whereas, let's say the chord the guitarist was playing was E, I would play E, but then say they went to C or C sharp, I would stay on E. What that does is it creates tension against the chord until you finally decide to resolve it. So after they yeah. played, they went through like four chord changes. Uh, then when they'd launch into the main riff, I would join them back on the main riff. Gotcha. And that's actually a uh, that's a Paul McCartney technique. Oh shit. Yeah, he um, and he even said that in interviews, like the bass you can control, you know where the song goes, you can control the key. And uh, even though I wasn't necessarily thinking Paul McCartney when I played that part, um, that I find out after the fact, you know, he does the same thing, and also rhythmic variations as well. So, you know, if the guitar is holding out a chord for four beats or playing a note for four beats, I can do that or I can play eight, you know, or I can play eight eighth notes or I can play two half notes. I mean, it's almost infinite, the rhythmic possibilities with the bass in conjunction with the drums uh, that you can do that uh, can give life to a song. Sure. You know. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, what's up, everybody? Normally in the middle of podcasts, I give you a bunch of advertisements, but on the NewOrleansMusicians.com podcast, we like to shout out our members. Today we have the Dwayne Bartels Band. Now, Dwayne is originally from California, but has since moved to New Orleans. His band's genres are funk, Americana, rock, roots, soul, and jazz. He draws inspiration from artists such as Ray Charles, La Femme, Nine Inch Nails, David Bowie, Willie Nelson, Dr. John, The Meter, Alan Toussaint, and Hank Williams. It's quite a spread, but I like it. When asked what single factor plays the biggest role in his decision to take on a career in music, he says he just loves it. He added that his move to New Orleans changed his perspective on how to pursue it as a career and really made it all possible. They've played the French Quarter Fest here in New Orleans, but have also played throughout the state in Baton Rouge, Lafayette, and Alexandria. Elsewhere, the Dwayne Bartels Band has performed all over the Gulf South, as well as in Tennessee, Georgia, Arkansas, Arizona, and California. They've got two albums out currently, The Ballad of Johnny Loveless, which was released in 2018, and since the latter half of 2021, the group has been in the studio with producer Justin Armstrong, whose credits include Death Cab for Cutie, The Deftones, and Dave Matthews Band. With him, they recorded Electric Baby Carriage, which was just released in the second week of April 2023. You can find them on my site, theworleansmusicians.com, 
and also on Spotify under the Dwayne Bartels Band. And here's an example of their work. This is every song on their latest release, Electric Baby Carriage. So hey, check it out, y'all. And now back to our show. Um, playing guitar, whether it was playing guitar or playing bass at the time, um, was it kind of causing you to dissect the songs that you would hear, dissect that instrument's part in those songs down to what they were doing technically? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, uh, you know, if you talk to a bassist or a guitarist or anybody the instrument they play they they feel like it's the most pronounced part of the song that they hear not that it stands out for everyone but it stands out for them you know and they they more take notice of that instrument's parts in that song i guess because of its relevance and you know their ears are kind of tuned to that already you know but um you seem to kind of cozy up to the technical aspects of the instrument so um that's why i asked you know when you were let's just pick bass, you know, by the time you were playing bass, uh, were you hearing these songs in a different way? Or would you, would you listen to it with the ear of a, a fan and then listen to it with, with the ear of a bassist? In the beginning, it was with the ear of a fan, although being a musician, you know, um, the bass parts would, um, they would, you know, I'd take notice of them, although not as much as the song overall. Uh, when I became a bassist, then I went back and re-listened and really analyzed, and I was like, oh, there is quite a bit going on here. Mainly, uh, the two bands in general like that, that I did that with, um, were uh, Atheist and Rush, um, because I was a fan, or I listened to the songs, digging on the songs, you know, being aware of the musicianship, but once I got with the bass... And I went back and listened to that and really started dissecting it, especially the bass lines played by the bass players for the respective bands. Yeah. I was like, whoa. I was like, okay, there's more going on here than what I originally thought was. And so it was a matter of dissecting and saying to myself, why does, say, Getty Lee play this particular run of notes or this line against what Alex Lifeson is playing on the guitar? You know, or why an atheist, why is... Tony Choi playing, you know, why is he choosing these notes or playing this type of figure against what Randy or Kelly were playing on the guitar? Why is he doing this? And and so as a result, uh, analyzing that and breaking it down, it definitely had an influence on me to, to realize that, yeah, there'll be times a lot where I will go with the guitar because you want to lock in, but then there are times you don't just want to follow the guitar all the way through sure you know you want to break off do your own thing do something different but at the same time at the same time not not ruining the song um i'll give you an example uh queen song um you're my best friend Mm -hmm. okay um i listened to that song as a fan for years i used to hear it on the radio growing up in the car you know it's talking about with my mom you know in the 70s 
And then when I started playing, getting into bass, listening to John Deacon, the bassist, listening to his bass lines, I was like, whoa. I was like, all right, this dude's not just, he's just not playing root five octave. He's not just winging it. Like the song, You're My Best Friend, to me is a good example. Because if you listen to that song, the bass is doing anything but just playing root notes. He's all over the place. He's doing triplets. He's walking bass lines. It's a very busy bass line. However, you don't, when you hear the song, you don't say to yourself, wow, listen to that bass line. <laughs> you don't. You're like, man, yeah. it's a really great song. It's a great melody. And to me, that is, that, that is like someone I would call a bass master where you can make the line busy, you can make it move, but at the same time, it doesn't detract from the overall structure of the song and it doesn't stomp all over the other instruments. It's there, but it doesn't stand out so much yeah. that um, at the expense of, of the other instruments. And um, that that's a good example of that. To me, I would dare say that to me, that is a lot harder than doing two-hand tapping or arpeggios or fast scales. I mean, because that's, that's technique, that's muscle memory, that's, you know, things you can learn you know like like exercises but to play the to to lay down a bass line that supports the song uh you know that can move around that can be busy but at the same time not not so much that it's distracting i mean to me putting the right note in the right place the right time uh that to me is much much harder than sure. doing a lot of fast crazy stuff yeah you know um and I guess as far as who would I pick for that style of playing, for me it would be like Paul McCartney, um, John and Twistle, John Paul Jones, uh, John Deacon, Queen. Uh, another guy he's lesser known, but to me he's up there with those guys is uh, Stephen McDonald, who's the bass player for Red Cross and also the bassist for the Melvins mm -hmm. as well. He's from that school, that real tasteful <clears throat> bass playing like every note's where it should be. He plays octaves where they're needed. He doesn't play anything that doesn't need to be there. Everything is placed perfectly and it serves the song. Sure, sure. I think you put it well earlier when you called it sublime, whereas it's it's understating, but it's still drive, a driving force. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, and that, that, totally. ta that definitely takes um, taste more so than, than uh, methodology, I guess you would say. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does. You know, I mean, uh, again, you know, but even then, the bass players who are like really technical, or uh, I'll give you an example Billy Sheehan. You know, he's known for doing his, you know, his two handed tap and his insane bass theatrics. But, you know, I saw him with the Winery Dogs recently at House of Blues. And if you listen to his playing with David Lee Roth, man, he's a, a solid, you know, he, he comes from the clubs playing in Buffalo, New York. He, you know, playing straight ahead, straight bass lines. You know, he can do that. Yeah. You know, um, he's one of those guys, he can sit there and listen to David Lee Roth album, Meet Him and Smile. They have a song on there, uh, I'm Easy, and he's just do, 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 do. Yeah, he's walking, you know, just a standard bass line, but, but he can do that because he learned to, to walk a crawl before he ran. Sure. You know, so yeah. I mean, he, you know, he can do that. Same with me, you know, people like, yeah, you know, they see my Instagram videos and they're like, oh, look at this, you know, like, wow. And it's like, yeah, it's cool and all, but you know, I'm, you know, I'm having just as much fun, 
you know, playing a, a blues line or a jazz line at, a, at an open mic somewhere, just kicking back and not having to worry about being at the forefront of, hey, watch what I can do. It's like, sure. no, man, it's like, I just want to kick back, hang with the drummer, yeah, you know, and, and support everyone else, you know. I'm a fan of um, an era of jazz, I guess, in the the 70s when there was a little bit of funk involved. I, I mean, I'm sure there's better people to describe it than me, but it's about early and mid early to mid 70s jazz like let's say the jazz crusaders or something you know but i was always a fan of the idea uh that the guys could get together and they'll all start off playing a song and it, it's going to go through its own progression where they're not going to give it to you all at once they're going to kind of build up to the best part you know but in the midst of all of that they'll pause and each guy gets his solo it's just so cool to me, you know what I mean? And then they all fall back in line supporting each other to complete the journey, you know? And I always thought that was like giving people their flowers. You know, you get your moment, but you know when to, to reel it back in and let the drummer have his moment or, you know, the, the guitarist have his moment. I, I just always thought that was, I don't know, gentlemanly or something, you know? Just just a mad respect, you know? Well, it's a matter, I'd say, um, it's just coming from, uh, you know, you're talking about the 70s stuff. It's just coming from the uh, the old bebop school, the old the era of jazz, sure. where you know the trumpet player had his part, then you know let the drummer do it, let the bass do it. Yeah, and that's um, yeah, that is cool because each person gets their little spot. And uh, for me, um, I guess the jazz thing hit me around 16, 17 years old. My first exposure to it was the British guitarist Alan Holsworth, who still to this day is my favorite guitar player, and. Then it from there it went to Steve Morrison and Dixie Dregs, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Tribal Tech, Chick Corea, mm -hmm. you know, and listening to the stuff in the seventies, it blew. Me, uh, I mean, uh, from the seventies, I liked it because it, you know, it was quote unquote fusion. It was jazz rock. It they were jazz players, but they had the intensity of a rock band. Uh, same with Weather Report for Jaco Pistorius. They didn't have a guitar player, but the dynamics they used, they were very energetic. And it was all—they were almost like a rock band in some sense. Yeah. And if you listen, um, I don't know if there are people watching this or fans of Mahavishnu Orchestra, but for me, if you listen to that uh, Inner Mining Flame, that first Mahavishnu that came out in I think '69 or '70, that is real—it's jazzy, but it's very rock. It's very—and the drumming on it's really intense. It's double kick. I mean, it's a very—it's a very intense album. And another band, although they're not jazz per se. But they, to me, registered with the same amount of intensity as King Crimson, hmm. especially early Crimson. So, yeah, that, um, and you were talking about some of the jazz with the funk. Well, I like uh, Herbie Hancock. He had a band called The Headhunters. Yes, sir. Before he went solo, and I like them. I have one of their CDs, which I thought was really good. And there's also one called Mr. Hands that he did that has a few cuts uh, with Jocko, him and Jocko playing on it. And... Um, and I didn't know Herbie was ever a jazz pianist because my exposure to him was the Rocket video on MTV. Get out, yeah. Well, yeah. I guess me too at first, but um, I guess in the past couple of decades, um, I've come to know him in a whole new light. I was going to say that it was funny that, um, or, or it was funny to me that someone who had left the clarinet behind, so to speak, um, within the interest of pursuing um, more metal sounds in guitar and bass, um, it was kind of odd for me to hear that you took a liking to jazz at, at uh, the age that right about when you were already making the transition 
to guitar and bass, but you you were still kind of digging on some of this jazz stuff, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like I said, when around 16, 17, uh, it, it started with Holsworth, then it just went from there, and and then come, you know, to find out years later, a lot of the bands I like, a lot of some of the progressive metal bands, whatever, they listen to the same artist, Yeah. you know, and some of them traverse the same path, being that they start out, you know, listening to a lot of metal and whatnot, and which I still listen to metal, but I mean, you know, then their taste kind of changed and it went off into jazz or jazz rock or whatever. And um, there are a lot of musicians that, that have traversed that same course. And um, and I think what that is, is because if you're a player, when you start out with metal, you know, unless you're just content with doing the same thing over and over, mm-hmm. you want to expand, you want to get better. And when you start listening to music that forces you to think outside the box you can't help but get better yeah well i think i think jazz didn't try to hide that that's for sure the experimental jazz miles davis um wanting to do his own thing improvisational jazz uh i was talking to somebody yesterday about um it wasn't so much jazzy but somewhat uh chicago transit authority oh Um, they were me too and they were an experimental brass band that's how they they branded themselves and that's exciting you know what i'm saying like i'm all for that i want to see what are they going to come up with next because you don't know and it's kind of funny um that you were drawn to that even though you were you had your eyes looking in another direction at the same time in the metal genre but the same quality endeared through both in its appeal with you was that they were doing something for the first time they were doing something different you know? yes no matter the genre yeah that's it was kind of cool yeah it was very uh it's very new to my ear, and and I appreciated it. I was like, whoa! I was like, because wanting to better myself as a guitarist, I'm listening to Alan Holdsworth. I'm like, what the hell is this dude doing? And and uh, just trying to, to figure out what he was doing, trying to figure out what Steve Morse was doing, what John McLaughlin was doing, what Ingve and Steve I were doing, and yeah, and that all that just really resonated with me. Sure. Yeah. Um. So you did the grooves and um, the grooks. I'm sorry. The grooks, yeah. Um, and uh, that's the first time I realized I was mispronouncing that. By the way, <laughs> I've already done a drop for y'all on a podcast, and I, uh, I mispronounced it. The grooks, um, and now mimic. Um, and you and I were talking about that a bit earlier, um, which also is is kind of forging its own path. Not kind of, but definitely is forging its own path. Not just with new orleans typical new orleans sounds but i think in general y'all are doing something completely different so i mean that needs to be mentioned um and then they can find uh some of that music on bandcamp also on neworleansmusician.com neworleansmusician.com yeah neworleansmusician.com and uh as of today reverb nation cool you know i posted one song on reverb nation but it's the it's the lead off track on the uh, on the bandcamp site Sure. So yeah, they they can find it there and check it out. And that, like I said, you know, we're working on newer material. You and know, with who? Uh, Mimic, Mimic and Apollo, Apollo and I. Okay. Yeah, we're working. We're working on newer songs. Uh, we're looking at uh, maybe five five tunes, and then adding in um, the first song off of uh, off the Bandcamp song called "Within a Nulled Future," which was composed sometime in around December. And maybe doing like a six song CD or like a little mini EP or. That's what I was gonna ask. How? What's your strategy for release? Because these days it's a whole different ball game. Yeah, we're, we're probably. I was talking to Apollo. Like maybe we would do like what they call the waterfall thing, where you release a single, and then maybe four five weeks later, boom, here's single number two, and then 
boom, here's single number three. And you do it um, every so often sure. to, as to not overwhelm or inundate the listener. Or um, because I've been doing a lot of research on this, and because of the streaming model and because of the way music has gone, the things now, it's going to be... It's going to be either, you know, singles or it's going to be EPs, you know, um, and that's something Apollo and I talked about when we first started the band. You know, it's like our, our, the songs that are on the band camp, they're fairly short, uh, not intended to be short. Uh, I mean, you know, they're like two and three minute songs. And this time around, like the newer stuff, like, you know, let's make them a little longer. But I was also what I was telling him was that, you know, nowadays people have really short attention spans. Absolutely. And the days of putting 10, 8 to 10 to 12 songs on an album, no. Nobody's going to get through the first five. Like there's a band I will not mention who I'm a, I was a huge fan of, and their last CD I got, they had like 15 songs in there, and I'm thinking, dude, nobody's going to make it past song number four or song number five. <laughs> like I couldn't even do it. and. Yeah. It might have been twelve songs, but anyway, it was a lot of songs. Sure. And but the way it's going now, everything you know, because of the streaming model, everything is uh, it's going to be singles or it's going to be EPs. Yeah. So we're either going to do an EP or we might do it as a single, and then four weeks later, boom, another single, boom, then another single. Sure. And just make the announcement, hey, new mimic single. Yeah. You know, because that that's pretty much the the way it's going now, and we're not streaming. Not yet, anyway, only because um, the streaming model, it's just, it's very unfair to the artist. I mean, I get it. You know, I know bands want to get their stuff out there. Sure. Like, hey, you know, we're now on all the streaming platforms, you know, TuneCore, Apple, Spotify. And that's great because a lot of people get to hear it, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, is it really benefiting the artist? And, you know, is the artist making, you know, getting anything out of it? And for the most part, no. And there was even a, a memorandum or, re, or something they were trying to pass. I saw this online um, in regards to Spotify and other streaming companies to make the model more fair for the artist and more lucrative. Oh, really? You know, what, was it like a mandatory minimum or something? Like yeah, a minimum like wage, I guess, some, so to speak? Yes. Yeah. And um, it this was like a year or two ago. And I don't know if it ever went to a vote because it was never resolved, but you can find that online. It was a motion that was filed in court uh -huh. on behalf of, I think, some musicians, you know, whatever, some musician company, music company to make the, the streaming model much, much more fair for the artist. Yeah. You know, because that's how a lot of people get their music now. They stream. And as a result, I was having this conversation with a friend of mine earlier, a sound, a sound engineer. Uh, and as a result, a lot of musicians, uh, they've sold their back catalog. Uh, one of them notably being Carmine Apice, um, the dude who, uh, you know, played drums for Ozzy and Bark at the Moon, you know, wrote songs for Rod Stewart. He's a legend. His drummer Vinny played in, you know, for Black Sabbath, for Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules. Mm -hmm. Carmine sold his entire back catalog for, for a set amount because he's like, hey, there's really no royalties anymore. Everything's streaming. You know, you don't get anything off that. And, uh... I also heard that, I mean, I'm not really a big fan of pop music, but I heard Justin Timberlake did the same thing. He sold his entire back catalog because, you know, nobody's, technically nobody's buying really CDs anymore. They're buying, they're not buying physical copies of music. I'm one of those weird guys, though. I want the, the physical copy. I don't care for streaming. I don't use the streaming services. I want the CD. I want the physical product because sure. I want to see who played on it. I want to see who engineered it. Yeah, the liner I, notes. The liner notes. Yeah, I man. love that. That that was one of my things with uh, LPs and cassettes. Like, I couldn't wait to see, like, who did they thank? You know, who did they, who did they, you know, who did they, 
who did they use, you know, sure. who did, and I'm, I'm still like that, you know, and just to, uh, real briefly, you know, when Laws Ulrich decided to call Napster out and take him to court and he got a lot of flack from it and, you know, from people like, oh man, you know, they made their, they, they got popular through tape trade and, you know, to hell with him and what he did, but... In retrospect, Laws Ulrich, he was right. He said this is going to deprive people, musicians, of being able to make a living doing this because you can download everything. We have no way to make money. So now, you know, bands, they've turned to, nowadays, you know, either it's, you know, doing selling merch yeah. or playing live shows. But then again, when COVID hit, COVID really took, um, you know, a lot of that out of the equation because then because of, because of it, you had stagehands that couldn't get work. You had bus drivers could work. Text, yeah, great, you yeah, name supporting it. services. For yes, sure, yeah. and they 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 couldn't work. So as a result, bands couldn't tour. And even then, there's still some residual from that. You have bands. I think uh, the band Loudness from Japan. Those guys, um, they just they, they uh, canceled their U.S. tour because the logistics just weren't there. And some bands, not only them, have to cancel because. Even after whatever money they've made, once they've paid out whatever help they have, there's very little for them. Some bands will, sure. will still lose money, yeah. but all because so many people are out of work for COVID, and a lot of a lot of the help, you know, um, wasn't available as well. So some bands won't won't even tour. They're like, no, it, it's actually going to cost us money to tour. Yeah, you know, especially after you've paid out. You know, whoever you've paid out your agent, you've paid out the venue or whoever you've paid out, you know, the tour bus company who you're renting your tour bus from. Yeah, or you not know, a lot left. Yeah, no, there's not, you know, yeah. and especially uh, unless you're selling your merch directly, you know, and if you're doing it through a company that you where you have to recoup your funds from the amount of merch sold, sure. you know, that's money you got to pay out of pocket as well from the merch. So for a lot of bands, it, it's not worth the tour, and they'll just, you know, they'll put out singles or little EPs and say you can get the music here, yeah, you know, for X, you know. So it, it's it's changed a lot, man, and it's I crazy. Like, I really like, um, I mean, I go digging for vinyl whenever I can, and I've appreciated being able to do it in different manners. Like sometimes I'll check to see who produced it or what label they're on. And that's going to tell me a bit about the album. And then if I recognize one of the members in the band and I know his music style, then I'm starting to learn, I'm starting to understand more about what it is I have in my hand that I've never seen before. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'll, I'll be looking for, you know, whatever. And um, if it, like CTI or Kudu um, records or you know if uh quincy jones was a producer or something i know about where they're coming from with these mm -hmm. things you know and um i've always appreciated that and there's so much more within the folds of uh you know inside an album that you can open up and look into you know i've always sure. appreciated that i think a lot was lost um on that in streaming um it's not there anymore and no absolutely especially yeah. too when it went to the uh when it went to the cd model there was just a lot when CDs started coming out. It, it's one thing to look at, you know, like say a Celtic Frost or Possessed album cover or whatever. Uh, it, it's one thing to see the actual vinyl, but then it's another thing to see it on CD. It just yeah. kind of lost something a little bit. You, uh, you know, I mean, believe me, when you've seen some of the album covers I've seen or, you know, back in the 80s going to, like said, Warehouse Records or wherever or the record stores I went to, and just seeing these album covers, you know, yeah. definitely a difference between that and, and the CD. I mean, it, there is. And just something, 
you know, got kind of got lost along the way. And Definitely of course, it's to be lost. expected, but especially between CDs and streaming, to where, like, when the Napster thing first hit, I knew somebody, that's all he did was stream everything and brag. Well, yeah, I got, like, blah, 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 I saw this. <laughs> I'm like, dude, but I'm thinking to myself, what do you know? What do you know about it? Yeah. yeah, there's nothing to, there's no liner, there's no Think nothing. About, and, you know, you talked about going from albums to CDs. The medium shrunk down to, like, yes. less than a quarter of the size of an album. So that's that much less space that you have for artwork. Exactly. And when you think about albums like, Santana's Abraxas mm -hmm. or uh, Miles Davis' uh, Bitches Brew. These yeah. were fold-out albums that yes. then became the size of a small poster with continuing artwork. You know, never seen before original artwork. Right. Murals. These right. are gorgeous, you know, pieces of art that you... Uh, you just kind of throw away because you can stream it now. And it seems kind of like a little bit soulless to me. I agree. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and the same could be said for the uh, the the ELO albums from the 70s and the Rush albums. Man, you open them up and it's like, whoa, it's it's literally, it's it's like a tapestry. It's like, man, this is phenomenal. This is incredible. Yeah. Because um, I had a friend of mine growing up, he had all the... Uh, the Boston and ELO and Rush and Queen and I would just sit there as a kid mesmerize open them and look like wow dude that's where and, it started for a lot of kids yeah. somebody else's collection they were so inspired mm -hmm. by it and they're like this is a whole world really detailed world this is amazing yeah de and definitely definitely lost in the CD and definitely the streaming age for sure yeah absolutely did your mom um, did she have a record collection or did a, did a family member did you ever have that experience as just a kid? Uh, my cousin yeah. my cousin had uh, some of the bands oh. I just mentioned plus he had the police uh, Blondie uh, so yeah my, my cousin did and um, that's where I got exposed to some of that listening to it on the stereo yeah and just looking at those album covers and Especially some of the Queen album covers and the and the ELO ones with the big UFO in the cover of the Boston, like wow, yeah, like, yeah, you know, definitely, like you said, it's shrunk down on the CD and it's just it just you know loses it just loses that sure, yeah. Um, talk to me about um, your you're doing uh, lessons now. Is it just bass or do or do you uh, do guitar lessons now as well? Uh, I can do guitar. Uh, I have in uh -huh. the past, but I prefer to I prefer to mainly stick with bass. Okay. Um, and I've been teaching well, when I was playing guitar, I was giving guitar lessons. so between guitar and bass, I guess I've been teaching since I'd say the the early 90s I've been, I've been teaching for close to three decades mm -hmm. um and I've, I've taught at uh, a couple music schools i've taught at the metairie school of music um i taught at um a couple music stores that used to be open at the time rock and roll music uh, i taught there um i also have a couple websites i get students through uh, one which is uh, taylor robinson uh, another one which is takelessons.com and they've gotten me students through that and i've done guitar and I've taught privately, and um, but I, uh, I I prefer to stick with bass because I just feel more comfortable on bass, and um, I just feel I have it more together on bass. Like I said, I can still I still have my chops on the guitar. I can still write. I can still play. But to me, when I pick it up, it kind of feels foreign to me. <laughs> whereas the bass, I feel right at home. Sure. Yeah. Um, did this get? Did this lead to sponsorships, or did the sponsorships come through other means? No, uh, it led to sponsorships uh, because what I had to do was I wanted to get Bartolini because I've been playing basses with their pickups in them for years, 
And a friend of mine, ex-coworker, told me about Instagram about, I guess, four or five years ago. I was like, Instagram? Which I was like, man, you can put videos up on there and you can tell me And I was like, really? He's like, yeah, put some, put some of your videos up on there. You playing bass and people will check it out. I was like, all right. So I did that. And, um, and I was like, well, I wonder if I could get something out of this. So I hit up uh, the Bartolini company. And um, they would shout tag. They said, okay, well, first you got to tag us in the videos. We'll look at the videos. We'll see if they're worth it. And so I started tagging them. And then they would email me and say, okay, for your videos, do this. Don't do this. Do this. Do this. Definitely don't do this. So they gave me a <laughs> list of do's and don'ts. Yeah. And the more I adhered to them, you know, it'd come back to, hey, that was good. Now do it better. And then eventually, after so many videos, they uh, took me on as a quote-unquote emerging artist, uh-huh. and they sent me the contract, and I signed it, and um, so I get I get half off any of their uh, any of their stuff. Nice. Yeah, so I get a percentage off of that. I also tried getting with DR strings, but that didn't really materialize. I'd like to get Ibanez, but that one is really tough because really you have to be a touring musician. Uh-huh. You really kind of have to have a name. It's hard to get sponsored with them. Uh, you know, you just you really need to be out there because I was, I was looking at Ampeg as well, but it's the same thing. You have to be out there touring. You have to have a name for the most part to, to be able to get endorsement deals like that. But I'm more than happy with Bartolini, and if I could get DR Strings, great. you know. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy with Bartolini, but it, it was work. Uh, it was, you know, doing the videos and... You know, and I'll say this right now, uh, any of those videos you may see on my own Instagram channel, not the Mimic Instagram channel, but my own Instagram channel, a lot of that was not one take, man. I had to stop. I had to reshoot, reshoot, reshoot. Some of the ones, I make it look easy, but don't think for a second that I nailed a lot of that in one take. I I didn't. I'd mess up like, nope, not good enough. Delete. Go back. Start it over. Yeah. Well, I mean, social media has a way of, of discarding transparency. I believe. You know. Yes. So that's that's a comfort to, to let people, or I guess it's an encouragement for other people to know that it, it you know it, it took some doing before oh, it, it materialized. Did. Yeah, it. because one of the videos I did, probably my most recent one on my my own Instagram channel, um, I did the intro of a song by a band called Liquid Tension Experiment which was basically a few of the guys from Dream Theater doing a soul thing, all instrumental. Mm-hmm. And there was this opening, and it was it done on the keyboard and the guitar, and it's ridiculously fast. And I, I learned it and played it on the bass, and people were like, whoa, like that's in, like insane. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I didn't get it. It took quite a bit to get it. It's not one of those. So anybody <laughs> out there, if they look at my videos, and they're like, my God, look how he does. It's like, <laughs> no, nah, dude. I, that didn't happen just one time through. It took multiple. At least you're not like, you know, showing your tits and lighting it on fire and all this other crap. It's raw talent. It's not, you know, it's not publicity stunts. So yeah, no. Applause not, for that. You know? Yeah, thank, yeah, no. It, it, but it's also to show Bartolini, like, hey, look, your boy, you know, has got a, a fair, you know, a decent amount of chops to him, you know. Because my thing was, too, a lot of base videos that I see on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook, they're good videos, but it's a lot of guys who are just, they're really not doing anything outside the box. They're doing slapping, okay, you know, they're, or they're doing funk bass lines, uh, lines from funk bands, which is cool, or they're doing whatever, and I'm thinking, well, you know, nobody's trying to do, I mean, they do have some bass players that'll do sax stuff on bass. I've seen quite a few um, who are really good at it. But I'm thinking to myself, you know, nobody's trying to do keyboard lines. Nobody's trying to do trumpet lines. 
you know, so I would just try and and do something different. Like, what is something I would do on bass that you wouldn't expect? Like, um, Randy Rhodes, I did. He has a song on the first side of the album called D, which is a little classical thing he wrote for his mom. I did that on bass. You know, I was doing, like, Bach pieces. I have some music from Bach and Beethoven. I was doing that on bass because nobody was really doing that. Sure. You know, they're doing, like, Flea from the Chili Peppers or they're doing Jocko or they're doing Les Claypool. And it's like, well, I really don't see people trying to do Bach or, you know, trying to do this or do that. So let me just kind of step outside the box on that um, a little bit and and do something different. Again, it's just to, to do it just to stand out because yeah. I, I don't really, I don't like being a clone. I want to have my own individual personality, be it as myself, as my own person, or uh, or the instrument that I play. Um, well, what I should say is the way I play because a lot of people play out in his bases. But I just want to have my own identity. I want people here and be like, yeah, that's Jorge, or George, whatever, you know, like, yeah, that's him. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't want him to be like, oh, that sounds like so-and-so, or that sounds like so-and-so, because then it's like, well, kind of defeats the purpose. But, yeah, I get it. I mean, there are some people that, you know, they they idolize their favorite player, and they want to sound like that, and, you know, some wind up being clones, and so be it. I'm not going to knock it. Yeah. Whatever it is, what it is. But for me, you know, I mean... I love Jocko, I love Getty Lee, I love Billy Sheehan, Steve Harris, Giza Butler, Cliff Burt, love all those guys, but I don't want people to hear my stuff and say, oh, that sounds exactly like so-and-so. I mean, if anything, I want you to hear the influences, but the influences are filtered through yeah. my own way of of uh, translating said influences into my own it's a style. Translation, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you how some of those pieces translated onto the bass. How did you feel they came across? So some of them are not going to be a good fit, and some of them are going to be palatable. You know what I'm saying? I chose the ones I thought um, made the most melodic sense, and to an extent were a bit easier to do. Um, the ones that would really come across as melodic and stand out was what was what I was going for. Not so much like what was the hardest thing I could play, although there are a couple pieces uh, like uh, that were definitely challenging. But for me, it was more of the melodic aspect, like you know something you could hum, something that was catchy, sure, as opposed to just a constant string or run of notes because eventually that'll bore the listener. Sure. So I think whatever I did do, uh, I think it came across well. Yeah. Did some translate better than others, like Bach, as opposed to uh, a keyboard theory piece? Or yes, yeah, yeah. Um, even though those guys wrote on piano, I found that, um, like for example, you know the classical stuff, um, especially the Bach's what they call his his inventions, which are their two parts. Uh, you have a, a part that's played in treble clef and a part in bass clef. And uh, so I would take, I, what I would do is I would play the treble clef part, which you wouldn't really expect to be done on a bass. And I found that um, it, it lent itself um, a bit better than, say, other pieces did. Like there were other pieces in there that were maybe um, a bit more, more spread out. Um, whereas with the ones I went for, they were a bit more compact, a little bit more noty, so to speak. But they were melodic and and at the time instagram they only allowed you one minute to yeah, get your rough. point across <laughs> so it's like okay what can i do in one minute to make the listener be like oh that's cool 
you know, so I kind of had to go with something that might have been, you know, like I said, I wanted it to be melodic, but at the same time, I also wanted, to, wanted it to be a bit challenging, yeah. and it's like, what can I do in a minute? What can I distill in a minute? Yeah, that's not easy. No, yeah. not at all, and there was stuff I had to discard because I'd look back at it, and it'd go like a minute and two seconds, and it'd and it would cut off. I'd be like, oh, well, man, you can't see the rest of it. So then I'd have to go back yeah. and either try and play it faster or just, no, I need to pick another piece that's shorter. Yeah, sure. Uh, tell everybody where they can find examples of your work. Uh, okay. Um, as far as me doing the, the classical bass pieces and stuff like that, uh, there is my Instagram, which is uh, J, then an underscore, then my last name, C-A-I-C-E-D-O-7. Uh, there's that. Then there is um, the Mimic Instagram, which is Mimic, M-I-M-I-C as it's spelled, 720. Um, and on there, I'm playing a few examples of the songs from the band camp, playing certain bass parts. Um, as far as Mimic itself, uh, there is the band camp site, which is Mimic1, Mimic and the number one, dot bandcamp.com. And then today I just put us on Reverb Nation as Mimic. So if anybody wants to check it out or see, you know, what David's referring to or what the stuff I'm doing, it's on uh, both It's on both Instagrams, J underscore C-A-I-C-E-D-O-7, and then Mimic 720. Okay, cool. And uh, the Grooves, too. The Grooves. Grooves. Um, the Grooves, they have a... Um, I think the group, uh, they have a reverb nation. Uh, we really haven't done anything since uh, about October, November of last year. Okay. Mainly because the other members are involved in different projects. For example, our drummer Don, he's now playing guitar in the tomb of Nick Cage. Mm -hmm. He's a new guitar player, and they, uh, they got, you know, and congrats to him for that because they're a really good band and they got quite a bit of a following going. So he's playing in uh, the tomb of Nick Cage. He's playing in the Dreadfields, and then our singer guitarist, he is playing. He's doing. Uh, speaking of keyboards, he's doing kind of like a very minimalist kind of thing with um, with a Moog, kind of like I think he's going for like a Kraftwerk electronic kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, he's been going on under the name the uh, the Keyboard Junkie, and he's been doing like little shows. I think at like Siberia or Santos, whatever. So we're all involved with different things. So it is really. If anybody wants to, to check the groups out, they're, they're on Reverb Nation, definitely. And um, so, you know, people can can check them out there for sure. Um, and yeah, that, that's about it, really, between the Instagrams and the, uh, and the, the, yeah, the Instagrams of Bandcamp. And then I have my, my own personal Facebook, which, you know, people already posted on that. You, you can just find them. I'm easy to find. So, yeah, that that's... If you want to check anything out, they can go to those aforementioned sites. Cool. All right, man. I think that's about it. Thank you, David. Appreciate it, man. Much appreciated. Thank you. Check it out. We all pretty much start off like jam bands. We get together, we push our souls out through the speakers. We look around the stage and read off of one another. And, you know, after so much time, we know where the next person's going. Aside from those connections, we build connections with the fans. And that means the world to us. That's why listeners like yourself are so important to us. We'd love to have you back, so hit the button and follow the show. You can also support this show by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash New Orleans Music. 
That's buymeacoffee.com slash New Orleans Music. And remember, you can find music videos, albums, articles, and interviews with bands like my own, Pocket Chocolate, on neworleansmusicians.com. Thanks for listening.